Welcome to the show today. I am Seth Gruber, host of the Unaborted Podcast, which you know if you listen to this, but this is a very unique and fascinating episode and conversation that is going to be used to reach and mobilize and educate people far beyond just the reach of my humble, personal little podcast. Uh, We are sitting down today with two incredible people, one of whom you have heard on this show before, Audrey Werner of the Matthew 18 group um, that does wonderful work explaining the occult, humanist, progressive roots of what brought us our pornographic culture, the sexual chaos that has ensued from the sexual revolution, and the radical dogmatic commitment of revolutionaries to comprehensive sexuality education, or CSE, which is, which is basically just a way to, to sexualize children and expose them to any and all forms of sexual activity at the earliest of ages. Because if you can get the kids while they're young, they'll serve you forever. And we've had Audrey on the show before, um, but one of her mentors and, and one of the people that was actually the first ones in, in a very real way to connect so many of the humanist, Darwinist, evolutionist, neo-Malthusian ethics of what brought us the sexual revolution in the first place is our second guest today, Claire Chambers, um, who wrote a book published in 1977 called The Secus Circle, A Humanist Revolution. Uh, Listen, you sometimes, listener, have asked yourself the question, how did we get here? Why are men who want to wear tights and lingerie that show their privates, why do they want to read books to my kids so badly at the library? Some of you are asking the question, why is Attorney General Merrick Garland arresting pro-life sidewalk counselors? Why did Corrine Jean-Pierre, Biden's White House press secretary in the fall of 2022, refer to pro-life conservative Christians as ultra-MAGA Republicans and quote, the greatest and most extreme threat to freedom and democracy? Some of you have asked, why if I met in my church at 50% capacity in the summer of 2020 to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, I was called a super spreader and a granny killer who hated my neighbor. But when BLM and Antifa burned down Democrat-run cities, it was called mostly peaceful and nobody was concerned with the outbreak of COVID. My point is this. Some of you are wondering, how in the world did we get here? What in the heck happened to the American culture that I knew in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s? the 2000s, the 2010s. The answer is this, things happen gradually, then suddenly, just like bankruptcy. (laughs) Some of you who have gone bankrupt or our friends who have gone bankrupt, uh, you know, that didn't happen all of a sudden. (laughs) It's like, oh, I'm bankrupt. No, there were probably a series of decisions that were made over a long period of time that led to said bankruptcy. I'm here today to suggest the same thing is true politically, The same thing is true culturally, and the same thing is true of ideologies. You see, ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. Policies have consequences because politics has consequences. So G.K. Chesterton once said, happy is he who knows not only the hidden causes of things, but who has not lost touch with their beginnings. In other words, happy is he who knows how we got here. (laughs) Happy is he who can trace the thread of ideas back to foundations that birthed certain ideologies and movements. 
And one of the first people to do this in the immediate years following the chaos of the sexual revolution was Claire Chambers, who's sitting with us today, the author of The Sika Circle, A Humanist Revolution. You've heard me talk about Sikas. It's the Sexuality Information Education Council of the United States. Before we welcome and introduce our guests, Claire Chamber and Audrey Werner today, I thought it would be valuable to frame the timbers, if you will, to explain that when certain institutions and organizations seem like they're all on the same team, (laughs) it's probably because they were always on the same team. That probably wasn't coincidental. And so before we welcome our wonderful guest who has been blazing trails for other culture warriors who did not even know that they were walking in the wake of Claire Chambers, let me cite Abraham Lincoln, who understood that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. This is going to set the tone for our long-form conversation and podcast today to help explain to you how we got to this position in the American culture war and maybe how we can get out. Abraham Lincoln, (laughs) the anti-slavery president, the president who freed the slaves, famously said, when we see a lot of framed timbers different positions of which we know have been gotten out at different times and places and by different workmen. Let's call them Stephen, Franklin, Roger, and James, for instance. And when we see these timbers join together and we see that they exactly make the frame of a house or a mill, all the tenons and mortises exactly fitting and all the lengths and proportions of different pieces exactly adapted to their respective places and not a piece too many or too few. In such a case, we find it impossible not to believe that Stephen and Franklin and Roger and James all understood one another from the beginning and all worked upon a common plan or draft drawn up before the first lick was struck. We have called this the long walk through the institutions. And Antonio Gramsci, one of the modern fathers of Marxism, uh, called this the strategy of the robes. If you can get the robes of academia, the robes of the courts, the robes of the clergy, uh, then onward with the revolution. If you can walk through these institutions and control the significant aspects of these culturally formative institutions, you can upend all of society. Claire Chambers knew that from the early 70s. Within years of Roe v. Wade getting passed, she joins us today on the show. Claire, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much, Seth. It's just such a, a pleasure to be with you. It really is. Well, it's it's a privilege to be to be sitting next to you. I have been <clears throat> I have been poring over this book, and the the what you knew in the seventies is just fascinating, and, and 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 this is so much a predictor uh, of where we're at today. And when when you understand that that bad seed yields a bitter harvest, to quote the Holy Scriptures, Absolutely. Uh, then we understand how we got here. And you were more detailing those bad seeds um, than anyone else I'm aware of in the 70s. And here we are in 2023. 
and we're 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 eating and we're going this is a bitter bitter harvest um and yet you were you were kind of trying to wake up the church and good people even back then um audrey thank you for being with us today uh, audrey werner of course uh been on the podcast two or three different times and the founder and president of the Matthew 18 group. Um, very briefly, Audrey, tell us what Matthew 18 exists to do um, and and why you're here today with us. With uh, Matthew 18 group is based on Matthew 18, 15 to 17. So my experience being a nurse, former sex educator, then working in the STD clinic, seeing the fruits of my labor, and like you said, well, <laughs> bad fruit, uh, and being realizing I was lied to, that they told me I would have good fruit. I ended up with bad fruit. I watched uh, society get more sexualized, children more sexually active. So I started to do research. And one of the, the people I came across was Claire. And uh, her, her book was very valuable for me. I, we've talked about other mentors the Lord has given me incredible people, all uh, people that have a knowledge and fear of the Lord. Yeah. And so I have been very blessed. So my focus in the beginning was to wake up the church. Yeah. I thought, wow, if we've morally shifted and it was based on this fraudulent criminal um, things from Alfred Kinsey, then certainly we need to purge that from the church and yeah. we need to move back to God's word and God's word alone. And so that's why I started up the Matthew 18 group. And I, like Claire, uh, started by just speaking to small groups of parents. Wonderful. And um, yeah, um, she she kind of uh, didn't have as much open doors back then. And certainly, if you mentioned communism back then, I think you were considered a conspiracy exactly. theorist. <laughs> and, <so laughs> yeah. and today we have legislators that are openly communist. So... Uh, it's no longer conspiracy theory. Yeah, this is right. this is facts. These are this is as you well said. This is why we are where we are today. Yeah. So, so Claire, um, as we as we move over to you now, um, and we're going to have notes and books here because the purpose of this long form discussion and interview today is to channel our inner honest Abe yes. and frame. Yes the timbers. Yes. There are a lot of timbers um, that need to be identified um, for us to start recognizing how deeply these early revolutionaries, well, I guess the, really the early revolutionaries go back to uh, Darwin and Thomas Malthus, but um, but some of the disciples <clears throat> of the, in the 20th century of those early revolutionaries were cooperating and communicating at a level that I don't think most American Christians understand. Mm -hmm. uh, they were all on the same team. They may have had different battlefronts, um, but all their colonels were communicating on walkie-talkies, if you will. Yes. They, they, they all understood one another from the beginning before the first lick or draft was drawn up. Exactly. Uh, and they worked upon that common blueprint. What originally happened in your heart and in your life, Claire, in the 70s that caused you to go, oh my goodness, someone needs to start explaining and identifying this humanist revolution, its goals, its creeds, and its high priests, and their goal of upending society. Um, what, what was happening in you? What led you to do the amount of research you did? As, as what I said in the introduction to people, I think the first major attempt, author and book, to connect all the pieces at such an early stage? 
Well, first of all, maybe what we haven't mentioned yet is that I did have a co-author. Together we make Claire Chambers. So she, uh, I think she was a little ahead of me. She, uh, I got to know her through uh, our husband, her husband's job. I happened to work for the same company and uh, we became very good friends. And she really was the one that said, you know, things aren't so good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we became friends and I sort of drew on a circle of conservatives, uh, people from different organizations eventually. But when it came to sex education, she said, how do you feel about that? I said, what's wrong with that? Mm. That's true. Wow. I said, there's nothing wrong with sex education. Well, let's look and find out. And so we, we were uh, invited to be on a sex committee. Anyone who wanted to apply, that is, a sex education committee. Okay. And that really started the whole thing. Wow. And I'm deeply indebted to her. So basically, you started going down the rabbit hole. Yes, and and, exactly. say, and saying, "Oh my gosh, let's exactly. say let's let's say it this way: you got red pilled." Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. So let's start framing the timbers. As Audrey and I were uh, discussing this conversation and recording beforehand, one of the things we discussed was just how much information there is, how many uh, organizations and sources there are to weed through. In fact. Um, the, 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 the two thirds of your book is, is called the circle of organizations that's explaining all of the humanist organizations and their relationship to one another and their relationship to seek us. Uh, I mean, th this was a true revolution. And so we have our notes and we have our books here because to frame the timbers actually takes a bit of time. This yes, is not yes. easy to do even for education research analysts such as yourself and for voracious researchers and readers like Audrey, this is still quite a project. Mm -hmm. um, and so here's the first question I wanted to ask you, Claire. Uh, can you talk about um, the precursors to what became Sikhus? What was the philosophical, dare I say, religious precepts, individuals and movements that were already happening, moving, and at work, shaping and shifting in the American culture war yes. prior to the founding of Sikhus. What were the kind of ideologies and, and the revolutionaries that were imbibing those ideologies and dogmatically inserting those ideas into the law, into the culture wars? In other words, help us frame the timbers that would start to build something like the Sexuality Information Education Council of the United States. Well, this is, as you say, it's it's really very involved. It's very uh, intricate. And as I told you earlier, it's like uh, discussing this is like trying to squeeze an elephant into a conch shell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just impossible. And you don't always like this, the sounds that come out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. Well put. <laughs> So I, d I wasn't sure if you wanted to go into early education first, or do you want to stick with just prior to Sikhs? 
So the CKIS is founded by Mary Calderon, the, yes. the medical director of Planned Parenthood, yes. who leaves Planned Parenthood in 64 yes. to, to found CKIS. And for our listeners who are not aware, CKIS is the first organization of from which others would later be birthed that was so radically committed to this pornographic sex ed to just exposing children to the most vile things at the youngest of ages. And so all the mama bears and papa bears that started speaking at school board meetings in the last two years. Uh, yeah, that's being pushed by CECAS and other similar organizations that are writing this comprehensive sex ed today. So why don't you start with education uh, and maybe some of the ideologies, some of the revolutionaries. Uh, and, and you in your book, Claire, you actually explain how the UN the United Nations and the United Nations Ethical Society Cultural Organization, uh, which I believe is uh, um, the uh, uh, described as UNESCO, mm -hmm. UNESCO, the United mm -hmm. Nations Ethical Society Cultural Organization. You make the point in your book that actually the beginnings of what would become CECAS were already working through the United Nations. So yes. wherever you'd like to go, help our listeners understand what was going on that would lead to the founding of such a wicked organization whose founders and board members and directors were all functioning off of Marxist principles, humanist principles, evolutionary principles, and ultimately, I think what we have to understand, Claire, as a proxy war attack against Christianity. Absolutely. Um, I think it's important to sort of understand that during our revolution, the American Revolution, it was um, the pastors, the churches, where the revolutionaries met, uh, and we right. all, and from the very beginning, we have always had uh, that uh, you know we're actually a Judeo-Christian nation, right. and have been defined so by the. Uh, uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court, but let's let's try maybe in the early 1900s, uh, where Planned Parenthood uh, Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger was very busy on a long crusade with the extremists of her day, and uh, it's been described uh, in the humanist. Uh, 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 I, I'm, I'm sorry, not in, in the Sika circle. Yes. I described that, uh, quote, it was the radicals, political, economic, and religious, among whom Margaret Sanger found her first supporters. That's right. And she herself was one of them. Her father, Matthew Higgins, was a socialist and the so-called village atheist yes. of Corning, New York. And explaining the religious persuasion of Margaret Sanger herself, uh, I quote, the word humanism in its present religio-scientific meaning was not then current, but call it free, free thought or rationalism or secularism, it remained, it wasn't it remained Margaret Sanger's creed. Mm. The first paper that she founded and edited was called right. The Woman Rebel, and its masthead bore the motto, No, no gods, gods, no, no masters. masters. So we're off to a good start with that. <laughs> uh, author George Grant, 
as explained. Um, he's a friend of mine, by the way. Is he really? I had him on the podcast last fall, oh. and he's a worldwide expert on the life of Sanger. He wrote a so, marvelous book called Grand Delusions. That's right. As I recall. So go ahead. So in Grand Delusions, George Grant says, Planned Parenthood style sex education is shocking. It seems to be designed to break down sexual inhibitions and validate sexual taboos and undermine sexual values. It is almost as if it purposely betrays parental and community trust inciting youngsters to an emotional and sensual frenzy. Planned Parenthood sex education programs and materials are brazenly perverse. They are frequently accentuated, accentuated with crudely obscene four-letter words and illustrated by explicitly obscene nudity. They openly endorse aberrant behavior, homosexuality, masturbation, fornication, incest, and even bestiality, sex with animals. Yeah. And then they describe that behavior in excruciating details. Now, a leading luminary of Planned Parenthood, it so happens, was Dr. Mary Calderon. In fact, she was with Planned Parenthood uh, as, the, as, I believe, an executive director and she was a physician, of course, and she served with them for 11 years immediately to founding Sikhism. That's right, yes. So she was ready. She was ready. Now, Claire, one of the interesting aspects and observations that you make in your book was how uh, tied in the United Nations was with so much of the rot that was spawned out of the sexual revolution and the chaos that ensued, but uh, but you 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 actually talk oh, about yes. a a a United Nations ethical societal cultural organization sponsored event in 1964 called the International Symposium oh, on yes. Health Education, Sex Education, and Education for Home and Family Living. It's a, he a heck of a title. Um, and you make the observation that Mary Calderon was at this international symposium. I believe it was in Sweden. Um, and that this became the blueprint for the founding of Sikhism, of which Mary Calderon would found just months following that UN-sponsored symposium on all of the kind of sex ed that became the focus of Sikhs. Can, can you kind of trace some of the roots for us and what was going on there? I'd love to trace a few of the roots before we get there because this is important. Because Frank Calderon, who was Mary's, Mary's husband, okay, uh, and he was a physician also, uh, he was at the United Nations World Health Organization as early as 1945. Whoa. And he with uh, 20 years before 20 Sikhism years started. before he was busy <laughs> okay. uh, laying the groundwork, totally laying the groundwork. He did it with Brock Chisholm, who was a humans, humanist of the year for 1962. He worked with him. Uh, together they shaped whose policies and structure 
This was Frank Calderon. And I, and I believe G. Brock Chisholm, who you just referenced, that Mary Calderon's husband worked for, was the director of the World Health Organization. He was the, the director. Wow. And he was also the humanist of the year for 1959. Wow. <laughs> so they, uh, and, and meanwhile, uh, at the same time this was happening, maybe a few years later, I'm sorry. A few years later, uh, when Mary Calderon had actually founded SICUS. Three years later, Frank Calderon, it so happened, uh, owned the Minsky Burlesque out on Long Island in New York. Wow. And in 1967, three years later, that, since she founded it, uh, and in 68, he imported the Minsky Burlesque from Las Vegas. And... It, and he had slated that same show for the next year in 1969. And certain parts of this were uh, described by Nassau County District Attorney William Kahn as very lewd and obscene. <laughs> to, and it was uh, stopped from going on as <clears throat> staged. Now, all this, while all this was happening, Mary Calderon flaunted her concern for young people that too much sex-saturated society exists. And she was so concerned that she founded Secus while he did this. Wow. So, wow. Or, or, I'm sorry, she founded Secus three years before, but That's I'm right. sure she was very Well, concerned. I think the takeaway there, what, what the point that needs to be made there, right, is yes. that th these were not just ideas. This is called this is called humanism praxis, right? That, that they were practicing this stuff. They were living these things. Mm -hmm. So much so that the founder of Sikas, her husband, is putting on sexually titillating performances <laughs> yeah. in the public square. Yeah. No surprise that she's putting the seeds of those type of behavior and ideas in the minds of young people through her organization. So, wow, that's a... And of <laughs> course, of course uh, the humanists are have yeah. always... Uh, created the disease and then supplied the antidote. <laughs> so that's right. Well, uh, that, that makes me think of a lot of things over the last three years, but we won't go there right now. <laughs> okay. Now, getting back to her husband, while he was working uh, with WHO, he was the, their whole chief administrator. He wasn't just an employee. Wow. And, uh, uh, um, oh, and by the way, keep that in mind now, that's the World Health Organization. When I served on a sex education committee, the very first night, the opening night, in came our uh, superintendent of schools. And he made the announcement, the first words that came out of his mouth after greeting us was, I, I really want you to have all you need to put this together and create a wonderful sex education program. And what I would like you to do is uh, cooperate with the UN's World Health Organization in developing wow. your program. And this is recommended by our State Board of Education to wow. do that. Yeah, okay. so, so now we're starting to see <laughs> the ties that already existed between the UN that's long been obsessed with this idea that there's too many people on planet Earth. Yes. We got to do something about that. The sun god's really angry. Absolutely. Mother Gaia is angry 
and we're harming yes. Mother Gaia. And so the UN has long been obsessed with this idea that they have a moral and political, dare I say, a spiritual obligation um, to become master planners, to become masters yes, of the universe, absolutely. to significantly reduce the world population. Uh, and, and later we'll actually talk about how sex ed is actually kind of the, it's kind of the prerequisite in many ways. And we'll talk about that later mm -hmm. to this population limitation or reduction yes. plan. But it's just yes. interesting for everyone listening. I, I want you to catch the significance of what Claire just said. The the husband of the founder of Seekus <laughs> is, is a high official of the World Health Organization sponsored by the UN, working for World Health Organization director G. Brock Chisholm, who's, who, who's long been obsessed with this idea of there, there's too many people on planet Earth. And I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, you actually trace in your book um, uh, some of the early seeds of the, uh, let's call it the early attempts um, at sex ed um, in the public schools. And, and I wanted to quote you here. This was a fascinating uh, aspect and contribution you made here. Uh, G. Brock Chisholm, who we're just talking about, the head of the of WHO at the time. And the humanists of the year 1959. That's right. So obviously we know what kind of creeds and ideas he's operating yes. off of. Um, was working with, and you make this point, was working with Julian Huxley yes. to lay yes. the foundation for what would turn into comprehensive sexuality education or SICUS sponsored sex ed. And, and he was invited to give three lectures in DC by special invitation by his friend, Alger Hiss, uh, and began advocating for sex ed starting as early as fourth grade. And here, here, here is where this starts getting, it starts taking a darker and more sinister turn and where it starts revealing, oh, you had some, you had some far more, far more ulterior and sinister motives um, behind your mm -hmm. science-driven education. And here's what you say. You actually quote Chisholm in his in some of his three lectures delivered in DC in the, I believe this was in 48. That sounds about right. And he, he talks about the importance of eliminating, quote, the way of the elders. Yes. The way of the elders. Isn't that interesting? And the 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 necessity upon insisting on, quote, the eradication of the concept of right and wrong. The eradication of the concept of right and wrong, Claire, is what G. Brock Chisholm yeah. said in his sponsored, invited by Alger Hiss, 1948 DC lectures, uh, 48, 58, 60, uh, 16 years before Sikis is founded. Yes. So there, there's, a, there's a concept in your book called Situation Ethics. Yes. Um, the architect and father of whom is named Joseph Fletcher. Um, I think we might need to talk about that because there are deeper worldview yeah. premises at work here that we need to understand. Why in the world would the director of the World Health Organization say, in talking about sex ed, that it's important to eradicate the concept of right and wrong? Yes. Can you guys start explaining well, what are some of the worldview premises at work right. that would lead to such ludicrous statements and praxis? Well, and, and we were talking uh, about this earlier, but the setup of, you know, law means fixed. And, and as you said, America is a Christian nation, but we're not a Christian nation because we have more churches or more Christians. 
we're Christian nations because our laws and our government were founded on the principles mm -hmm. of the Old and New Testament. And by the way, I love the, the course Biblical Citizenship, which is teaching Christians and churches now about our foundations. Yeah, Rick Green's a, a good yes. friend. He's doing great Rick, work. Yes, yes, he's doing Very a great important. job. And David Barden. And, um, but it was, uh, so God's law, it was based on God's law, which was the common law, and that was fixed. And I think for those on the other side, they were frustrated because God's law never changes. A law means fixed in every language. Right. So you have the Darwin concept brought into the universities in the late 1800s, especially in the law schools. And so now you're teaching that um, where man is evolving. Well, if man's evolving, then law needs to evolve. And so a situational ethics, which might be right for you morally, might not be right for someone else. So we need to move away from God's law. So that's where wow. the shift came. And they needed the science and the social science. And that's why uh, uh, the legal system starts to change and you start to see the call for getting rid of the common law and, and drafting some kind of new law, which becomes the model penal code right. in the sex offense section. And they need the social science behind it. So uh, the wealthy elite are funding, the, the American Law Institute is founded in 1923, uh, which is the educational arm of the um, uh, American Bar Association. And then UNESCO at the UN is the educational arm of the UN. And so you have to go out and educate people, uh, leaders, in this new idea of shifting law and getting rid of, in the legal system, we have to get rid of the common law and we have to bring in a, a model penal code. And they needed the social science behind it. And that's where Alfred Kinsey, uh, his science was used. So he was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and the National Institute for Health. Right. Uh, and yes, and uh, Hugh Hefner later uh, funded SICUS, um, but uh, worked, he he was a, a disciple of Hugh Hefner's. Yeah. So uh, we're going to dive into yes. uh, exactly what was the bunk science yes. um, behind all of that that led to um, the, the founding of the Institute for yes, Sex Research, exactly. later, later renamed the Kinsey Institute. But, but, but the point I wanted to make and that I wanted you guys to help build out for our listeners is that these, these people were simply using sex ed yes. um, as a tool to be wielded. For far more sinister yes. political yes. Changing, revolutionary changing goals, a nation. it's changing um, a nation. And so, yeah. Claire, you you quote Thomas Altizer, the contemporary leader of the Death of God movement, um, who was not a name I was familiar with, and I was doing some research on him. He was a pretty significant uh, author, individual, and revolutionary, a founder of the Death of God movement. <laughs> and and you quote him at the end of your chapter two here. Could you spell his last name? A L T I Z E R. Altizer. Oh, Thomas yes. okay, Altizer. Uh, and here's how he put it. To, just so we're as we're framing the timbers to understand that mm -hmm. the, this was a relativistic, no gods and no masters. To yes. quote Margaret Sanger, yes. revolution. And he said, once God has ceased to exist in human experience as the omnipotent and numinous Lord, there perishes with him every moral imperative addressed to man from a beyond and humanity ceases to be imprisoned by an obedience to an external will or authority. 
and, and you hear a lot of these revolutionaries say things like this. Yeah. Um, this comes out a lot in Lester Kirkendall's mm. writing, mm-hmm. who you're going to touch on in a little oh, bit. Yes. This comes out in, in, in some of the writings from, um, um, well, many of the board members of, of Sikas was their disdain for the Christian ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and to, to, yeah. to piggyback off of what was Audrey was saying, right, they, they use science, loosely <laughs> defined, yes. to add a layer of intellectual credibility yes. to what they're doing. Yes. But yes. they seem to only cite their other revolutionary friends yes. and never yes. cite or observe the science from yes. people on the other side of the aisle. Exactly. Which is interesting. And they love to flaunt all of their titles to each other <laughs> yes. to make sure everyone understands. Yes, yeah. uh, we uh, we want to get to that UNESCO-sponsored symposium, but I wonder if first, we didn't really adequately explain situation ethics, and I think Audrey is the can explain that a little more. Well, it, I, uh, right? like I said earlier about what is morally right for you may not be morally right, and, and I was thinking about when we were talking about the UN, they also push for the sexual rights of the child, that the child should be able to decide. Um, and, and you're starting to see in the sex ed circles um, and the committees, the word consent is now in uh, uh, sex education committees. Yeah. Now we're going to teach children how do you consent and not telling them anything's morally right or wrong. You can consent when you're a young child or you can consent when you're married, but you know, or you're on a date or whatever, yeah. it's it's situational well, ethics. If, if I could paraphrase Joseph Fletcher's situational yes. ethics for the layperson, yes, if it feels good, do it. Exactly. That, <laughs> that seems to be the, the the premise of situation ethics exactly. is that is that an act is is not right or wrong um, in the nature of the act itself. Right. An act is only right or wrong to the degree that it brings pleasure and joy yes. or pain and destruction. So if yeah. you enjoy it, yeah. then then it, it actually cannot be morally wrong. Exactly. Um, and, and so that's why consent becomes one of the linchpins exactly. of, the, of the sexual revolution. They, they only gauge a moral act and an immoral act based off of whether consent was obtained or not. Exactly. And so this is actually very important for everyone listening. You need to start understanding now why there's always been this push yeah. to argue mm-hmm. that children have the mental advancement and development to mm-hmm. consent. Consent. Because exactly. then if they consent to an adult child relationship, if they consent to have their genitals chopped off because the boy thinks he's a girl, right. then it's not morally wrong. And the parent wrong. doesn't want them to. Yes. Then the child should be removed from the home. There are Democrats in America pushing similar legislation. There's a bill right now in California that's pushing this rights of the child stuff. Um, so I know you wanted to get to, to some of the push from these demonic revolutionaries who thought that children had sexual rights. But maybe before we dive into that, can you start going back to these early gatherings of UN would-be revolutionaries, um, such as this symposium sponsored by UNESCO okay. that led to the founding of mm-hmm. yes, very, What did you want to contribute there? It very, very definitely did. Um, okay, I, I think if I may... 
And I believe in your book, if yeah, I recall, yeah. this happened in Sweden. In Sweden. And yes. there were there were political leaders from various you know, countries there. I have to correct myself. It was not in Sweden. There were Swedish delegates that we'll talk about. Okay. But this took place in Hamburg, Germany. Okay, thank you. Favorite place of... Yes, a lot happens in Germany. The, of the, you know, who's. <laughs> well, it was uh, in Hamburg, Germany. And at this symposium, they uh, discussed health ed, sex ed, and family living, not surprisingly. Remember, it was UNESCO-sponsored. And uh, the delegates that, uh, that were there received training in uh, discussion techniques, role-playing, psychosocial, drama, all, all the things that humanists love. And there was a proposal that was adopted there uh, considered to be universal sex education. And it was introduced by two Swedish delegates. And uh, included in their subject outline was the structure and function of the genitals. Now, this sounds very innocent in a way, but when you see pictures of what the children are shown uh, in school, they flaunt all of this in large sizes, all kinds of things. And uh, then masturbation was included there, abortion, of course, birth control, and not to be excluded, sexual deviations. Yeah. So five months later, after the symposium, was when Sikas function, began to function. Wow. They and even Calderon had, was, she married Calderon was there. Yes, yes. Oh, I'm sure she was there. I, I don't have, how could she not have been there? Yeah, yeah. You know, so, and keep in mind too that uh, Frank, uh, her husband Frank, had all of these connections, right. not only with who, where he was uh, the chief administrator, but he, uh, it was UNESCO and uh, what was the other organization that fails me at the moment. But he had this interlocking business going on, right. even with uh, Alger Hiss. I'm going to mention him later. Okay. So. Uh, and you make the point in your book, Claire, actually, that the the Swedish blueprint yes. for sex ed is an almost like for like yes. to the first proposals and yes. initiatives of the sexuality mm -hmm. information yes, education council was in the United adopted. States. That's right. It was adopted. And and it's worth it's worth um, pointing out that Sweden has long been an early leader mm -hmm. in cultural rot. In yes. 1938, uh, Sweden became the first free nation in Christendom to revert to pre-Christian abortion legislation and to institutionalize Planned Parenthood sex education and family limitation programs. Um, so 1938, Excellent. Sweden, first okay. nation in Christendom to get rid of their protections for the pre-born and start allowing for the killing of children. So it's no surprise, I'm just saying, that, yes. that that's the Swedish delegates are saying, here, here's right. all the rot we're up to. Exactly. Uh, and that pro that provides the, the blueprint for Sigis. Yes. Okay, so then uh, it was, as we said, it was just months later, five months later, Sigis opened its doors and there was Mary Calderon. Uh, she was eventually uh, dubbed the Humanist of the Year for 
1974. And I'm sure it was for what she did with sex education. Yes. And a co-recipient with her of that Humanist Award, would you be surprised, it was Joseph Fletcher, author of Set Situation Ethics. Wow, wow. In fact, father of Situation That's Ethics. That's right, yes. Which, again, for those listening who might be confused by that phrase, it's just relativism. Yes. You know, it's, it's just uh, there are no moral laws. No. There is no moral lawgiver. No moral, exactly. absolutely. God is dead. Yeah. Your God is a joke. Yeah. If it feels if good to you. If it feels good to Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, now, Seekus yeah. is provided with seed money by Hugh Hefner, um, who, as we'll discuss later, seems to fund a lot of bad stuff. Yes, he <laughs> Isn't does. that fascinating? Um, he yes. did, the late. He, yeah, and and actually, I and I, I was going to bring this up later, but since we just brought him up, I believe that um, Hugh Hefner once told Alfred Kinsey that he wanted to be his pamphleteer. Max Lerner said that uh, Kinsey was the researcher and Hugh Hefner was the pamphleteer. Yeah. And Playboy magazine was the first issue came out in 1953. And that was the year that Kinsey's Sexual Behavior in the Human Female came out. Wow. So again, this is <laughs> the timbers yeah. being laid yeah. um, yes. for this, yeah. this well thought out plan. Absolutely. And so as Kinsey was going to the, uh, you know, to the academic elite, he is meeting with the lawmakers. Um, then Hefner brought Playboy to the college students, the men who then shifted from being protectors and providers to Playboys, yeah. and then the women uh, were shifted to Playgirls. Yeah, and we're 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 gonna get to Kinsey in just one second yeah. because he yeah. deserves a full treatment. <laughs> Amen. Yes, we need. Uh, yeah, we we but, just but he before we through, get to Kinsey but, yeah. because he becomes one of the linchpins, if you will. Um, of, of the entire sexual chaos uh, revolution, um, we need to talk about sensitivity training. So the early Sikhist study guides seem to be the precursor mm. to what would become the more formalized praxis or liturgy, if you will, yes. of sensitivity training. I, I refer, Claire, to sensitivity training as as the liturgical arm of the religion of humanism. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, and, and I'm sure you'd agree. Yes, um, absolutely. But, but I think what's, what very few people understand, Claire, um, is, is what sensitivity training is and how long it's been being used by the humanist revolutionaries in our schools. Can, can you help, especially parents and Christian leaders, understand this humanist liturgy? Um, what, what, how do we understand sensitivity training and, and how was that kind of, I guess, the application and the praxis in the schools of the kind of common presuppositional uh, ideas that, that Sikis was absorbing about the sexual rights of the child, that there's no sexual act that's taboo or wrong, situation ethics, if it feels good, do it. Um, Christianity, it's so, it's so repressive. And it's holding people back from their true human potential because there are no gods and no masters. Mm -hmm. And so uh, to quote Margaret Sanger, through sex, mankind may attain that great spiritual illumination, which will transform the world and light up the only path to an earthly paradise, end quote. So if, if, if that's true, then why not titillate the kids? Why yes. not sexualize them if that's the only that's right. path to an earthly paradise? So my understanding is that, is that sensitivity training 
was just the liturgical application of those ideas. But how, can you help us understand sensitivity training? Yeah, and that you know that came from and you know we were just talking about this that we are not um, Pulitzer Prize winning um, <laughs> journalists. We're not expert. You know, we're not lawyers. We're not. We're moms, yes. <laughs> you know, and a lot of the time we did our research when we were stay-at-home moms and we read the books. And so yes. one of the organizations uh, that I came across was RSVP America, which is Restoring Social Virtue and Purity to America. And they have a wonderful handbook uh, that they published and they talk about the human sexuality researchers and how they got into the academia, because then you started to get degrees in human sexuality. Interesting. Um, and the first universities to offer it was uh, New York University in 1964. Of course. Um, the uh, Institute for, I believe it was sexual health. Um, it was at the uh, University of San Francisco in 1968, and then the University of Pennsylvania in 1978. So they had developed something called the sexual attitude restructuring in 1971. Wow, yes. And then you could get coursework uh, in erotic massage, self-massage, sex education, course design, and implementation, sex surrogate use and therapy, fantasy, masturbation, forensic sex, uh, sexology. Um, so they trained the educators. So the, the point was that they trained the college students who then became the educators that trained the students. That's right. And a lot of the coursework, um, uh, Dr. Judith Theresa, when she looked back at it, if you were getting your master's or perhaps your PhD in human sexuality, you were watching a lot of porn. That's yeah. what that was. And right. it was the uh, rewiring of your brain. You know, just like, well, I don't even watch American television anymore because I'm so disgusted with the rewiring that's going on, because now we're seeing more and more sexual deviance yep. being incorporated into television programs, and that's sexual attitude restructuring in itself. Yes, so and they, that would be the way to describe sensitivity training, yes, sexual exactly. attitude readjustment. Yes, exactly. And so my understanding of sensitivity training, it was, it was essentially role-playing um, certain situations yes. Uh, yes. to absolve children of any ethical duties they might have in said situations yes. to borrow a phrase from Joseph Fletcher right that my understanding of sensitivity training it was is is to arrange these um thought experiments and role yes. playing of conversations and sexual situations in the classroom yeah. as part of science and part and of you're the restructuring yep. the students attitudes so if they're in a christian yeah. home where they're getting biblical <laughs> values they go to school and then you are, you know, you're reprogrammed. Your brain right. is reprogrammed. Yeah. And so we here we are getting very, very, we're getting closer and closer to Kinsey without saying it. Yes. Because yeah, exactly. a, a lot of the <laughs> ideas um, that would drive someone to do something like that um, are ideas that, that came from more so than anyone else. Uh, Alfred Kinsey. But but you say in your book here, Claire, to quote your brilliant research project here once again, which if you can find this book used anywhere, guys, I think I spent a hundred bucks on this used on Amazon. It's hard to find. Uh, the Seeker Circle of Humanist Revolution. Uh, you, you, you say regarding sensitivity training that there was a spring 1969 special advisory committee of the State Board of Education in California that did a thorough investigation on the subject of sensitivity training. Mm -hmm. And you quote the results of that 
special committee investigation from the State Board of California in 1969, so five years after the founding of CECAS. And here's how you cite their conclusion. Sensitivity training is being used by those who are in fact aligned with revolutionary groups acting contrary to public policy. That is, they intend to use the schools to destroy American culture and mm -hmm. traditions. Yes. A 1969 special advisory committee investigation to the State Board of Education in California saying all the way back then, yes. oh, this is clearly a tool to destroy <laughs> American culture and traditions. Yes. Right. That was the common denominator, mm -hmm. kind of political motivator of a lot of these revolutionaries. Yes. Um, so I think we need to go to probably to Kinsey now if we're going to start filling in some of the puzzle pieces and gaps that our conversation Unless has left you open. Would like me to take two minutes, if I may. Oh, please. I had a personal friend who uh, went through sensitivity training. Okay. Tell that With story. her husband. Her husband took her there because they were having marital difficulties difficulties. I unfortunately can't remember the name of the group, but it was very new agey. Sure. And they went there for the weekend. And the first thing they had to do after they all became friends with whoever else was there, uh, during the evening session, they all had to take off their clothes. <laughs> and one by one, uh, they had to stand in front of the group and discuss what they didn't like about their body, what they didn't like about their mind. Wow. It was brainwashing, yeah. uh, you know, just just uh, as if you were in the, yeah. the Soviet Union. Right. It reminds me of that. Wow, wow. And she was so upset that she couldn't stay there. She had to leave and their marriage kind of went downhill too. Yeah, shocker. Yeah. But I just thought uh, that that's where it's leading. Yeah. yeah for adults at least, and yep. probably children someday. Yep, and all of the angry parents over the last two and a half years um, that spawned this almost Tea Party level organic grassroots uprising yes. of the mama bears and papa bears at school board right. meetings, which, yes. which I, right. think, I think Attorney General Merrick Garland recognized very early to bring some of these ideas to our modern moment, uh, could be a very damaging movement to the, the today's humanist and progressive mm -hmm. revolution. Mm -hmm. And so that's why he has to come out and say, we're opening up an investigation into domestic terrorism. Um, this yes. was two years ago um, of the moms and dads speaking at school board meetings. Why and what were they angry about? Yes, critical race theory, but also the pornographic sex that in the schools. Yes. And this goes all the way back to Seekus. I mean, more so than any other Absolutely. organization that's be, be behind the the rot, the sexualizing of children, yes. um, which if you guys haven't really noticed, is kind of like the hot topic right now in the culture wars. <laughs> and we're trying to do this to warn you, to tell you it's not going to stop yes. because it's been brewing. Yes. It's been brewing for so, so long. So Seekus constantly refers in their study guides and in their research, constantly refer to the Kinsey reports. This becomes one of the more cited, credible sources that bolsters the allure of their intellectual and scientific credibility of what Seekus was doing. Uh, but they also constantly refer to William Masters and Virginia Johnson, this Masters-Johnson uh, sex ed duo team that was funded by Hugh Hefner. You actually say in your book they were funded up to the tune of $750,000 over yes. 10 years. 
Um, they're communicating with Kinsey. Uh, that you actually said in your book that there was a a connecting link between Secus and 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 the Kinsey Institute found in a referral system for information requests set up by Secus to share information with one another. Um, and we've only scratched the surface. So as we now turn to that aspect of this conversation, we need to talk about Kinsey because nobody is more significant uh, in their demonic influence over our children, yes. over the cultural rot in America, mm -hmm. and over the proxy war attack against Christianity. Mm -hmm. Probably more, nobody more so than Alfred Kinsey. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to part one of our long-form conversation with Claire Chambers and Audrey Werner, two moms who just went down the rabbit hole many years ago and realized the truth behind the sexual revolution, the, the, the demonic keys that were being used to bring down American culture, the, these high priests of humanism, some of which we are getting to in subsequent series and episodes in this conversation of people who were radically committed to an ideology and carried the conclusions of their ideology to wicked, wicked ends. So much of our current culture of death can be explained and traced back to people like Mary Calderon, the founder of Secus, who we just talked about, and Alfred Kinsey. And so in part two of this long-form conversation, as we're framing the timbers and trying to identify the timbers of the sexual revolution, the framing of the American culture war, and understanding the coordination of these revolutionaries and their communication and intentionality behind the sexual revolution, one of the most significant figures of the 20th century and the culture of death is Alfred Kinsey. So stay tuned for part two coming soon where we take a deep dive into a man who has been referred to as the father of the sexual revolution, Alfred Kinsey. More coming soon. Please share this episode widely with your friends, family members, and coworkers. And for goodness sakes, our pastors, your elders, the church, who is suffering under the prophecy of Hosea 4.6, that my people, says the Lord, are being destroyed for lack of knowledge. We're trying to make sure that the 21st century church in America is not destroyed for lack of knowledge. So we're going to go back. We're going to trace the ideas. We're going to frame the timbers. This is just the beginning of a four-part series with Claire Chambers and Audrey Werner, two amazing culture warrior women who knew a lot of this stuff for a long time. And now we're bringing them to you to wake American culture up, and most importantly, the church before it's too late. Stay tuned for the next episode. Until, until then, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.